Hi, I'm Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week. Our hope is that we'll share some information that you will find helpful. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen, listen for, for the, the word. word. Hey everybody and welcome to our podcast today. We are going to be looking at Matthew 15 verses 21 through 28. And as you look at this and remember this passage, I think you will find it is that is one it's very difficult to read. And I think Alan is really going to help us understand it um, within a broader context. And I think it will make more sense to you after you listen to our podcast. I hope so. I hope so. Um, this week, our gospel lesson focuses on the story of Jesus' interaction with the Canaanite woman, as she's called, in Matthew's gospel. Mm -hmm. And it's a story that Matthew likely drew from Mark's gospel, although he made significant changes to it. Um, Matthew seems to feel the need to address the challenge this passage presents to the principle that he and only he attributed to Jesus in the missionary discourse when he told the disciples, do not take a road leading to Gentiles and do not enter a Samaritan town, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's Matthew 10, 5, and 6. And that seems to be um, a fundamental principle that not only Jesus gave to his disciples, but one that he observed in his ministry in Matthew's gospel. Yes. And so, again, I think it's, when I think of this verse, I, I'm sure I mentally stuff it together with Mark. And so, again, we're, we're going to pull that apart as, it's, it, as Mark has it, or excuse me, as Matthew has a different lens. He so definitely does. He definitely does. Now, in the Revised Common Lectionary, the preceding verses, 10 through 20, where Jesus explains that it is not food that defiles a person, but the actions that come from the heart are included as, a, as optional for the gospel reading for the day. And normally I favor including more of the context, but in this case, I don't think it's necessary. Uh, it would seem that in both Mark and Matthew, Jesus' interaction with the Canaanite woman becomes a demonstration of the principle that Peter articulated, that God shows no partiality, but in every people, anyone who fears him and practices righteousness is acceptable to him. That's Acts 10, 34 to 35. And actually, John Chrysostom um, mm. thought that this was the case long ago. So for that reason, I would say that we should keep the preceding context in mind about, you know, the question of following, you know, eating with unwashed hands and, and what, whether foods are clean or unclean, uh, that, 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 that seems to, to, to be uh, part of what's going on with our lesson for today. But I don't think we have to belabor the point other than to say that in Matthew's gospel, this woman's faith is another example of exceptional faith from those outside the people mm -hmm. of Israel. And the other one, the other example in Matthew's gospel is the centurion at Capernaum in right. Matthew 8, verses 5 through 13. Right. And we're going to find, of course, in the Reformation context, faith is going to be going to be central to their interpretation. Not well. surprising, yeah. Right. So uh, how does Matthew introduce the story? Yeah, he just gets right to it. He says, Jesus left that place and went away to the district of Tyre and Sidon in verse 21. Now, one challenge this presents immediately is the question whether Jesus actually went to Gentile territory because it would seem to contradict that mm -hmm. instruction in Matthew 10, 
5 and 6, to his disciples not to enter Gentile territory. So there have been some who've tried to resolve this problem by explaining it away. Uh, either Jesus only entered territory that was under the control of Tyre, but stayed in Jewish villages, mm. or the woman came out of that region when it says that she was from that region. It's, mm-hmm. We should translate it that she came out of that region and met Jesus in Galilee. And interestingly, Davies and Allison, the, their magisterial three-volume massive commentary, endorse both of these possibilities but i think they're unconvincing uh, you know and and mm-hmm. in the context of matthew we've already seen jesus enter gentile ter- territory when he entered right. the region of the gadarenes in the decapolis right. in matthew 8 28 through 34 well is there a difference between him telling that to the to the disciples and not himself i mean i don't think so i, I don't think so i mean i think i think see i think the thing the thing is is the question is how Matthew is 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 interpreting this, and so Matthew mm-hmm. is is responsible for um, the saying, "I was sent to the, only to the lost sheep of of is, the house of Israel." Uh, you know, it doesn't seem that we have much evidence that 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 saying goes back to Jesus because it's not in Mark's gospel. It's not in Mark's account of this. It's only in Matthew's mm-hmm. gospel. And Matthew is the only one who has right. this principle, do not take the road leading to Gentiles and do right. not enter a Samaritan town, but go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So it seems like this is an issue that Matthew is concerned about. Interesting. I have another question to this end. I mean, Tyre and Sidon are Phoenician cities. Yes. So why, why are they using Canaanite here? Well, um, I'm going to get to that. Okay. Okay. I'm ahead. So hang on to that brilliant yeah. question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah. Head to God. <laughs> so then I would say that Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Uh, I think the fact that he's withdrawing here explains the exceptional nature of this itinerary. You know, this is not, it's not that Jesus is engaging in a mission endeavor in Tyre and Sidon. He is withdrawing from the conflict with the Jewish religious leaders that starts off this chapter. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, the NRSV translates the verb anachoresin as went away, and it just doesn't necessarily reflect the same idea as withdrawing. Now, there are many times in Matthew's gospel where anachoreo is simply used to refer to Jesus going here or there, and that would make sense. I think this is one of several instances where the idea of withdrawing seems required by the context. So, for example, in Matthew 4.12, Jesus withdrew to Galilee when he heard that John had been arrested. So there was a threat, right? Right, And in Matthew 12.15, Jesus departed, using the same Greek word, and these are the translations of the NRSV in both places. In, in uh-huh. Matthew 4.12, they say Jesus withdrew, and in Matthew 12.15, they say Jesus departed after learning that the Jewish religious leaders were conspiring to destroy right. him. So it seems, I, I, I think this is another one of those episodes where Jesus is withdrawing to avoid um, to, uh, the escalation of conflict, danger. further escalation yep. of conflict. and. And um, given the context of conflict with the Jewish religious leaders in the beginning of chapter 15, then it makes sense that this was just another withdrawal on Jesus' part. And, you know, where was he going to withdraw to? <laughs> so. Well, that's true, right? Yeah, very good point, very good point. Yeah. All right. Now, so, you know, usually 
Alan, we see Mark has a lot more detail. Does Matthew keep the detail? No, he doesn't. Matthew shortens Mark as usual in some ways and, and <laughs> adds to Mark in other ways, which is M Matthew's pattern. And basically, Matthew ignores some of the narrative details that Mark recounts and gets straight to the point. He says, just then a Canaanite woman from that region came out and started shouting, have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is tormented by a demon in verse 22. Now, that Matthew calls her a Canaanite instead of Mark's phrase Syrophoenician may reflect the Hebrew Bible's use of Canaanite for Gentile. That's, that's fairly commonplace in the Hebrew Bible. Um, those who are, mm. who are not of Israel are Canaanites. And it's a uh, negative term, typically, in the Hebrew Bible. Mm -hmm. And when you well, that kind of answers my question. Yeah. Right? And so when you combine, combine that with the fact that Matthew names the region as Tyre and Sidon, as opposed to Mark, it just says Tyre, the region of Tyre. Tyre and Sidon was also a formula in the Hebrew Bible, and uh, it invoked sort of a traditional prejudice against uh, Gentiles in general and Tyre and Sidon in specific as an enemy of the Jewish people. Oh. And I wonder, you know, I think that maybe Matthew may have, may have used this language to highlight the woman's great faith. You know, he's, he's, he's sort of calling on these traditional Jewish prejudices against someone from that region uh, by calling her a Canaanite and saying that she's from Tyre and Sidon. Um, that would have been, that would not have been heard, you know, uh, in, in a negative, in a positive way at all. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but yet at the same time, this unexpected person from, you know, this unexpected Canaanite from Tyre and Sidon of all places, um, has great faith in Jesus. Ah, yeah. That's, I, that's very powerful actually. So mm -hmm. it's good. I think, okay. I, I think Matthew is, is highlighting that. Ah, so tell us more about the, the, the woman. What do, what do we know about Well, her? I mean, it's surprising, I think, to hear a Gentile woman who is a Canaanite from Tyre and Sidon address Jesus the way she does. She addresses him with the language of faith and with the prayer language of the Bible. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, one of the open questions is, how would she have even heard about Jesus and what he had done? How would, right. she, how would she know to address him with this language of the Bible? And, you know, that we might be we might be pressing it here because maybe Matthew is the one who's crafting this narrative and and he's the one who's crafting the dialogue and placing these words on her lips it's hard to say but i've mentioned before that only those who approach jesus with faith call him curios and that's what mm -hmm. she says right off the bat lord right you know right and so at the time when matthew added this to the account he found in mark curios was already well established as a fundamental affirmation regarding yeah. Jesus. That's a huge, I mean, that's a point I'm going to highlight because I think we could miss that, especially mm -hmm. without your commentary. And I think anyone listening, this is kind of a big deal that uh, would be easily overlooked. I think it's easy to overlook the use of Lord in, in Matthew's mm -hmm. gospel. Now, yep. um, those who think that this woman would not have had any basis for a quote, fully Christian use of the title may be correct in the strength sense of the word but regarding the historical situation, but we're dealing with Matthews placing the title on her lips. And yes. I don't think there's any way um, in Matthew's gospel that he's not implying that, that she is using the language of faith here. You know, it, is, yeah. it is only the people who have faith in Jesus who, you, who call him Lord when they approach him. And, and, and so... Um, 
I also think that this perspective on her faith is strengthened by her by her request, have mercy on me, because that reflects the prayer language of the Bible. It's word for word from several of the Psalms in the Septuagint. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. It's also the same as um, the, the in Matthew, it's two blind men. The two blind men asked Jesus to have mercy on them. And so yeah. it's the same prayer language as Jewish supplicants use. So where does she where does she you know get this from? How would she have that exposure? I don't know, but I think we can say perhaps it reflects Matthew's um, um, the way Matthew is framing this this story. And again, you know, she also uses the title Son of David in the context of which in yes. the context of Matthew's gospel, you know, at the very beginning, the, uh, in, in the very first verse, Matthew calls Jesus the Messiah, the Son of David, and the Son of Abraham. So Son of David is an important concept for mm-hmm, Matthew mm-hmm. and for Matthew's gospel. And so all of this, I think, contributes to the depiction of the woman approaching Jesus with great faith. And we might easily overlook that language, but I think right, part of right. you know part of it is her persistence, and that's oftentimes recognized. But part of it is she uses the language of right. faith. She she does the things that reflect faith, and and so um, we should. I was I was caught by the son of David because yeah. that's that's definitely an Israel reference yeah, that's well. and you know. and i think for us we're so used to the term lord that it's easy for us to miss that in matthew that's only on the lips of believers yeah and it's yeah. easy for us to miss i think have mercy on me you know we're we're also familiar with that language right it's easy right. for us to miss that that's unusual uh the the, the yeah. centurion at capernaum he does not use that language when he asks yeah. jesus to heal his servant um, and so that, that this woman, this Canaanite woman from Tyre and Sidon uses this biblical language of prayer, which became the prayer language of the church, right? The right, Matthew's right. readers would identify with that. Um, and that's significant. So then how does Jesus respond to her? Well, Jesus responds with silence initially. Uh, and this is only in Matthew's gospel. Uh, Mark's, mm-hmm. Mark frames the story in a completely different way. But in Matthew, Jesus responds with silence. He doesn't say a word. And Matthew also tells us that his disciples came and urged him, saying, send her away, for she keeps shouting after us. That's Matthew 15, 23. Mm. Now, in my opinion, this doesn't paint the disciples, who are also known in Matthew's time as the apostles and the foundation of the church, right, right, in a very positive light. In fact, it suggests that they held the prejudice against her that Matthew may have been trying to allude to by calling her a Canaanite. Oh, sure. Now, I like the way the NRSV translates the verb kradzai as she keeps shouting uh, after us. Because, and interestingly, only the New American Standard, the, the Bible, the NIV, the New American Bible, the Net Bible, and the CEB, along with the NRSV, translate it that way. But I think that's the way to go, because in the previous verse, where it says she began to cry out, she started, cry, she started shouting in the NRSV, mm-hmm. she started shouting, it's actually imperfect, ekradzen. And, you know, yeah, the imperfect can be translated in an ingressive sense, uh, in, in terms of she started shouting, she began mm-hmm. shouting. But I think the combination of the two leads to the implication that 
She kept crying out, have oh. mercy on me, Lord, son of David, repeatedly. Oh, yeah. But this was not just oh, yeah. one one entreaty, but that she kept crying it out. You know, kept crying oh, out wow. repeatedly. Yeah. yeah. And so the disciples' request to send her away may have reflected their own prejudice, but I think it also may have reflected an ongoing tension in Matthew's community regarding, you know, how does a church made up of Jewish and Gentile believers exist? And we're going to talk about that mm-hmm. a little bit further in a moment. Well, and this is making sense within what we know about Matthew's community. So sure. this is really... I, and I'll talk about this later, but I've heard this, this is such a troubling passage and I've heard different people try to approach it and I'll mention it later what I do, but, but this is very insightful, I think, to Matthew, where he's coming from, and also to this woman of faith. Mm -hmm. And so in a way I'm very, all of a sudden one that I kind of wanted to not, uh, maybe not preach on is becoming very exciting as I'm starting to as we're starting to move through it. So cool. let's yeah. keep going. Let's All keep right. going. So when Jesus finally speaks, he reiterates the principle articulated in the missionary discourse. He says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel in Matthew 15, 24. Mm-hmm. Now, when you compare Mark's gospel and Mark's account of this story, this statement, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, again, only occurs in Matthew, just like Matthew 10, 5 through 6. Do not go, you know, to the way of the Samaritans or the way of the Gentiles, but only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's only in Matthew. So these two, these two statements that so strongly emphasize this idea of limiting um, uh, the ministry of Jesus and his disciples to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. It's only found in Matthew's gospel. It's mm-hmm. not found anywhere else. Now, so in comparison then, I think it's pretty clear that Matthew has added this to the dialogue. And it would seem to me that Matthew and or his community found Jesus' interaction with a Gentile woman particularly challenging to the understanding that Jesus came to bring the kingdom of God to the people of Israel in fulfillment of biblical promises. I think this was probably something that was, that was important. I mean, you can see Paul even referring to this. And I think it was probably important in the Jewish, early, early Jewish Christian church as well. Mm-hmm. So, again, only after the resurrection does the mission of the church extend beyond the Jewish people in Matthew's gospel. And yet, even Matthew reports Jesus' interactions with Gentiles who displayed exceptional need, like the Gadarene demoniacs. Right, you know, right. They, they, he goes to the region of the Decapolis, and he's confronted. In Matthew, it's two. He has a fondness for doing this. In yeah. Matthew, it's two demoniacs who confront him. And, and, you know, he, he, he heals them. Um, or, the, or Gentiles who display exceptional faith. The centurion of Capernaum. Um, one of the things that, that he says is, you know, Jesus is going to go with him and heal his servant. And he says, no, Lord, just say the word. And, my serv- and I know that my servant will be healed. For I, too, am a man of authority. And I tell a man to go. And he goes. And I tell a man to stay. And he stays. Right. You know? and, and Jesus says, I, I haven't found such faith in Israel. And so um, even Matthew reports that Jesus, um, you know, brings the blessings of salvation to Gentiles who displayed either exceptional need or exceptional faith. Mm -hmm. So it seems strange that Matthew would dwell on this idea of a limitation that Jesus perceived, um, that that Jesus could not do anything for her because he was sent only to the house, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Um, And I, I... I wonder if perhaps Matthew is 
is editing this episode with a view toward addressing lingering tensions between Jewish and Gentile Christians in his community. We can see this all over the New Testament letters. Mm -hmm. We can see it in a number of the dialogues in Acts, especially in the Apostolic Decree in in Acts 15. Um, You know, that's one possibility. Uh, I think there may be another possibility as well, and I'll mention that later. But I think one possibility is that Matthew reframed this whole story to address lingering tensions in his community between the mm-hmm. Jewish and Gentile Christians. It, wow. I mean, that's what I've got is wow. So because it gives such a, a clear, it, it puts this story within the context of who we know Jesus is. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's such a troubling one that people just jump over it. And yet then this, this provides such a, an actually an amazing uh, amazing work of Matthew to put this in a context of his time yeah. and I, I actually really love it now. Oh, well, we're not so, done. We got more we're not done. To I was going to say we need to move on because we're not done. So, let's keep going on. Yeah. So then Matthew tells us that even then the woman didn't give up, but she came and knelt before him saying, "Lord, help me." in Matthew 15:25. Now, I find it strange that the New RSV translates proskuneo uh, as knelt before, right? Because that kind of, I don't know, that's kind of milk toast. especially yes, when yeah. Matthew has only recently recounted the story of Jesus' disciples worshiping him, right? The New RSV right. translates it, the same verb, proskuneo, as worshiping him in the boat in the story about the walking on the water in Matthew 14, So, now, honestly, it is an open question whether every instance of proskuneo connotes a person worshiping Jesus, but I think it's putting too fine a point on the question to not recognize this woman's fundamental stance toward Jesus. Right. Again, not only does she call him Lord, not only does she use the prayer language of faith, have mercy on me, here she worships him. And mm-hmm. I think Matthew used that word intentionally once again to call attention to her great faith um, yep. in a setting which, which potentially was beset with a conflict between Gentile faith and Jewish prejudice. I This is awesome. And I, I was also thinking of how she called after him, right? The shouted mm-hmm. after him also fits that intensity yes. of, her, yes. Yes. of her faith. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. yeah. So then, strangely, you know, in response, Jesus maintains his firm stance. He says, it is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs, in verse 26. Now, here Matthew is lining up a little bit more with Mark, but not precisely. Uh, Mark, Mark has a similar point in, in Mark's, episode, Mark's version of the story. But at this point, I really have to wonder about the whole situation. Uh, As some have recognized, this dialogue reverses the normal situation where someone else usually raises an objection and Jesus corrects it. Here it's Mm -hmm. Jesus who's raising the objections and this Canaanite woman is correcting him. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's very troublesome. Well, and so for me, another option besides the one that Matthew is trying to address the tensions uh, between Jewish and Gentile Christians, the other option is that I think Jesus may have been testing his disciples. Mm -hmm. Uh, It it strains credulity to me to think that Jesus 
would have actually excluded this woman in such a heartless manner. Now, you know, I know a lot of people want to say Canarion was a tender term. It was for little puppies. No, uh-huh. that's not the case. It was it was um, uh, a reference to household pets, but nevertheless, uh, it's pretty harsh and heartless that you know, she's one of the household pets. She's, she's included with the dogs as the household pets and not included among the children. Mm-hmm. Now, yeah, yeah. I, I think it, this has been always so troubling, right? Yeah. Because you can't visualize Jesus, the Jesus that we know, if you will, saying this. It's, it's inconsistent. There's nothing else like this. this in the whole gospel right. tradition. And, and also to pretend that this dogs wasn't an insulting term. I, and I, I always go back thinking about, you know, the German. I mean, the dogs eat fooder and it's not it's not the same food that people. I mean, it's just there's animals. Not the same. There's a different word yeah. for human mouths and animal mouths in yes, German. Exactly. Yes, exactly. Yes. And there's so that I'm kind of this. Yeah. Distinct. You can't, no, you yeah, can't that, you can't talk your way out of this. This is just. Exactly. Demeaning. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. Now, some people would say that it it seems reasonable to think that perhaps Jesus was testing her faith. I don't think so. I think, in fact, he was testing his disciples, as I mentioned mm-hmm. earlier. Um, and, of course, they failed the test miserably. Uh, and I think the point uh, of Jesus' objection here that I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and that it's not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs, I think Jesus was actually... Um, giving voice to the objections that the disciples had. Well, that would be consistent with what they started with, was mm-hmm. send her away. We don't have time mm-hmm. for her. Up, et cetera, et cetera. I, I think Jesus was giving voice to, to the objections that the disciples, uh, that he knew the disciples had to even helping this mm-hmm. woman, even to even speaking with this woman. And, and perhaps also, I think in Matthew's context, the Jewish Christians and his community may have still harbored some of those same prejudices because this whole thing about Canaanites and Tyre and Sidon as the enemies, this was, this was in the Bible that they read. They had grown up, you know, believing that Canaanites were unclean and that the Tyre and Sidon were the enemy. And so here's a woman who is a Canaanite from Tyre and Sidon. (laughs) You know, I think it's, I think the Jewish, yeah. the Jewish Christians in Matthew's community might have still been dealing with that same prejudice. Right. And it's not lost on me that this is also a woman. Yes, <laughs> right? of I mean, course. Right? Really not worthy. So right. This is, she's this is she's so... an outsider in more than one way. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, so I think, I think Jesus is addressing the objections that the disciples may have had to the full inclusion of Gentiles with the Jer- Jewish people in the community of faith, and maybe some lingering tensions that Jewish Christians in Matthew's community may have had about that issue as well. Awesome. Yeah. Wow. Cool. All right. So moving on then, um, how does she respond then to this? this test well she's undeterred you know and she just demonstrates again her persistent faith and matthew tells us that she said yes lord notice again curios Mm -hmm. yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table in verse 27 so despite jesus apparent resistance she continues to address him as curios and she takes up his analogy about the children and the dog dogs and extends it by pointing out that the dogs in the household eat the crumbs that fall from the table at the same time as the children 
right? Because while the family's eating and the crumbs fall from the table, the dogs are under the table eating the crumbs is the idea. Mm-hmm. And this is different because in, in Mark, you've got this, you know, first give the food to the children, then it gives, goes to the dogs. And right, Matthew's right. removed that. But, but in, in Matthew's version, she's the one who says, yes, but the dogs get to eat the crumbs while the masters and the children are eating at the table. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so at this point, I would say that Jesus is, drops the pretense that he's adopted. I think Jesus was adopting a pretense in order to test the disciples' response to this woman. And so mm-hmm. at this point, he drops that pretense, and he responds to her in a similar way that he responded to the centurion of Capernaum. He says, woman, great is your faith. Let it be done for you as you wish, mm-hmm. in verse 28. Now, again, I think it would not have been lost on Matthew's audience that while Jesus addressed Peter as oligopistos, you of little faith, in, you know, in, the, in the episode of Walking on the Water, Peter is little faith. And, and we, I mentioned then that that seems to be a consistent uh, response of Jesus to the disciples. They're oligopistos. They're those who have little faith. He commends this woman who is a Gentile, who is a Canaanite from Tyre and Sidon, for her great faith. Right. right. Yeah. And so one of my reformers picks up on this. Well, actually. and, and I, I mean in Matthew's gospel, only the centurion and this woman are are commended for great faith. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this is important not to overlook. And I, I this is a good reason I think not to skip this passage. You know, the the one about the centurion isn't so offensive. This one is more offensive, but I think we shouldn't miss that Jesus pro, you know, Jesus proclaims her faith to be great faith and he doesn't say that about any of his disciples. Right, exactly. So it's it's I just I love this story now. And as I said, I I eventually in our here I'll talk about some of the ways I've heard this done and but this is yeah. this is so rich, so yeah. rich. So then as the the passage winds up as with the centurion servant by the way, this woman's daughter was healed at that moment which means Jesus healed her from a distance. He didn't have to be in her presence. The same thing happened with the centurion servant. Wow. So what are your final thoughts? Well, I think this unusual story bears witness to a tension that we find running throughout the New Testament. The particularism of God's purpose with reference to the Jewish people. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's, I mean, that runs throughout the Bible, right? They're the chosen people versus the universalism of extending salvation to all nations. And that's just not, that's not just found in the New Testament. It's found in the whole Bible because you see it, especially in the prophets. Yep. And it would seem that Matthew felt the need to bear witness to the idea that Jesus came in the first place to bring salvation to the Jewish people. And so we see Jesus um, um, demonstrating God's faithfulness to his promise. But by the time Matthew wrote his gospel, of course, the Gentile mission was already an established fact. It already had been an established fact for 50 years. And, and while it seems that Matthew may frame this episode like the one with the centurion as an exception in his gospel, mm-hmm. we should note, I think, that the reason the blessings of salvation are extended to this Canaanite woman from Tyre and Sidon, as well as the centurion of Capernaum, is solely because of their great faith. Yeah, that's awesome. And, of course, that's, I really think, what people should come away with. Yeah, I think so, too. Yeah. I think mm-hmm. so, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, we're going to come back, and I'm going to talk a little about how the reformers saw this, and uh, and then I'm going to share this 
translation. I'm going to have Alan work on that in our third segment. Okay, thanks. Thanks. Hi, friends. We're back, and we're going to talk with Christy about uh, where the reformers went with this passage. So tell us what you found, Christy. There are two general themes associated with this passage for the reformers. The first is this um, the role of faith, and then the second is the ministry to the Gentiles. Uh, before I head into these discussions, however, I want to talk a little bit about the Reformation and is as it is a movement that redefined what the church is and how it works. So the theology of the Reformation is so drastically different than the medieval church that preceded it, that, is, that it needed an entirely new structure to carry out church business. So we have within this movement of the Reformation, a couple of identifiable time periods, and most people aren't familiar with this. So the interpretation of today's passage spans both of these time periods. First, there is the period of the initial Reformation, when we often use 1517 as the starting date, the, you know, the posting of the 95 Theses supposedly on the, on the door of the Wittenberg Cathedral. But I, I might argue that the beginning of the Reformation really began with the Renaissance humanists, who began to both criticize the Roman Catholic Church or this medieval church, and then began to scrutinize scripture and its ac accuracies the Greek that they had um, available to them at this point against the Latin Vulgate, and they found all these errors. Um, so these folks, known as the Christian humanists, really began the dialogue that would become the intellectual backbone for the Reformation. And so so about, about when did they begin that dialogue? Do you, do you have a, base, a, um, a general the, time frame? Really, the, I would say the late Renaissance, so we're talking about 1450, oh, okay. although one can argue there's some earlier, you know, John Huss right, and, uh, right. and, and Wycliffe and some of these people even earlier that had started to make some criticisms. But what really shifts here is this influx of, of documents that were in the East that were, um, that were coming over from the late Crusades that they began and these Greek documents that they found. Um, oh, wait, these are older in the original language of the of, of scripture and gosh the scripture we're using is very different and and frankly incorrect and and it's the human renaissance humanists were very very concerned with text it was like the yep. older it was the more accurate it was yep. and so they were studying the italian renaissance and the italian humanists were studying the um the secular type texts the, mm -hmm. the ancients um Whereas then the Christian humanists then began looking at this in terms of the Christian text. Yeah. And, and, and we're doing that same kind of detailed uh, analysis. And the that was the beginning of, 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 of the birth of the critical New Testament text that we have today. And exactly. text, textual criticism, which is one of my fortes. Exactly. And so anyway, um, <clears throat> uh, a, a very important time for the development of the intellectual backbone of the... Uh, Reformation. And so from there, uh, you have this time period where you have people analyzing scripture and then crafting, if you will, asking them what it says to them. And then this theology that we can think of as Reformation theology begins to merge salvation by faith alone, um, 
scripture alone, grace alone, all these things that become core to the Reformation identity. But just because you have this theology doesn't necessarily mean you can make a church from it. So between about 1550, and that's the Peace of Augsburg, Augsburg Confession, um, really up at about 1700, you have this other time period. Um, and I'll talk more about that in a minute, but it's a time period that uh, was identified by a historian named Bodo Nishan in the early 90s that he called the period of confessionalization. And this was when churches began to identify um, how they were going to function as a church within the context of their beliefs. And they began to define that in terms of a, 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 in terms of a, 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 a governing structure. Yeah. And identifying in that structure. So those two different time periods actually I think are really important for us to understand what's happening. It's not just one lump. Well and don't um, the don't the Heidelberg Catechism and the Second Helvetic yep. Confession come from that time period? Absolutely. Yeah. Those it's, it's a period of, if you will, confessions. Yeah. Um and it's also the period that is led into by the um, Catholic Reformation or the Counter Reformation beginning in 1542 with the Council of Trent. So, and as they begin to identify, this is what it means to be Roman Catholic. Mm -hmm. So, important to know. So, I want to go the passage today, and I want to start with this first half because I think it reflects the kind of response to Scripture that you get in that first part of Reformation studies. And so, as they're looking at this in terms of um, in terms of scripture, they're seeing it primarily about faith. Of course they are, because that's what the Reformation's emphasizing. And specifically, this faith of this woman. Well, but a as couple, we saw, I mean, that's, that's really what the passage focuses on, right? Exactly, and that's really what we talked about as well. Yeah. Um, and, but I didn't, I don't know, um, as, a, as a modern person, I think we sometimes come to this wondering, well, what's up with Jesus? <laughs> right? Yeah, I think right, modern people right. come to this. And I thought that could be part of it. Or th I, there were hints that people focused on the sinfulness of the woman, mm, a more medieval context mm -hmm, about it. Right. And, and not, they didn't go there. And in fact, I think Alan asked me, I thought you'd spend more time talking about her. And they didn't. They just talked about her faith. Yeah. And I was particularly impressed with that, that this recognition that faith is something that's equal between men and women. I mean, the, the faith isn't, isn't in that sense of hierarchy that you would have seen in a Roman Catholic church, right? Mm -hmm. Where you would have put on, well, a, a nun might have great faith, but, you know, a priest probably a little bit above that. Yeah, you know, right. She's going to be tackled by her femaleness. Right. None of that, none of that came out. Yeah. So, um, and I think it makes sense um, that they are, all of them, are drawn to the totality and intensity of her faith, um, and speci specifically through that lens that emphasizes salvation by faith alone. Sure. Um, Lutheran reformer David Chitrius claims that when Jesus calls her a dog, that it reflects her unworthiness, that she is polluted and abject. In his mind, she embraces the promise of grace, grace even though she is not worthy. So the ultimate sin... That's where you get at with the ultimate faith. Wow. Added, added onto this is not just the 
the faith, but the practices of faith, that this woman was an example of true prayer. Yeah. In other words, true faith brings about a natural, appropriate response, which is prayer. So there were some that went off talking about this being a model of prayer, this kind of faith leading the the request. Um, well, and you know, as I mentioned, like I said, I mean, the, the language she uses is the language of the Bible, of the language of the Psalms, and would have been the prayer language of the church, mm -hmm. uh, would have still been the prayer language of the church on the day of the Reformation. Exactly. So another commentator on her faith was Menno Simons. Now, that's, you recognize that name from the Mennonite tradition, um, really part of the the Radical Reformation, but, but, but many of those I always hate radicals sometimes because there were great spiritualists in here. Of course, Mano Simons was one of those folks. And, but he, so he really latches onto the faith and um, that she had faith in Jesus and knew who Jesus was. And um, even though he came to her in harsh words, she trusted in the being that was Christ. So I thought that was That's interesting. interesting. Trust, yeah. She trusted trust, in who she had heard him, heard, you know, what she had heard about him and who she believed him to be yeah. and, and, and got past the harsh words. Exactly. Yeah. So um, some of this um, juxtaposed a scene prior to this, explaining that this is an example of Christ leaving the really ungrateful Jews mm -hmm. and coming to the land of the Gentiles. That's interesting. Where even, yeah, I thought that was astute. Even where even someone as lowly as this woman and rejected as she was still had faith and here they point out that not only is she a gentle gentile but a canaanite the most wicked in the eyes of the jewish tradition and that's something you mentioned yeah the same this commentator john boyce and he's a he's a little later he's an actually an anglican um uh, but still really at the time when anglicanism was was um, kind of battling what you would have called evangelical ideas versus um Kind of the traditional ideas. So a mm -hmm. lot of a lot of Luther's ideas are, are so are Protestant ideas mind. versus traditional Catholicism. Yes, thank yeah. you. Yes, yeah. um, and noted here that the woman's faith is described as great, whereas the disciples' faith was described as little. Yeah, something thought, Alan also pointed. Thought it was out. cool that he pointed that out. Yeah. Yeah, and of course Luther, Luther chimes in on her faith, and for Luther. This is where he just really has that passionate language of, of faith that he sometimes does. I just it I was, just think that's huge that Jesus says, because he doesn't say precisely that about the centurion. He says, I've not found such faith in Israel or something like that. But here, you know, you, woman, your faith is great, you know, and only... You know, a few episodes pre or prior to this, he has he has, you know, gently kind of, um, uh, you know, questioned Peter. You of little faith, why did you doubt? You know, and and right. as I mentioned before, I mean, when he addresses the disciples, he oftentimes addresses them as you of little faith, and that's amazing. Yeah. That here's a Canaanite woman from Tyre and Sidon who has great faith. Exactly. And I was impressed that, that at least one of the people we, I looked at yeah. saw that. Yeah. And, and I, I was also, and I'm not sure, I think this is because I'm a modern person. No one really got after Jesus for the harsh words. Oh, yeah. No one drew on that. And, um, it, and I want to point that out because later. But anyway, I want to now kind of segue into the second point of the emphasis on this passage that coincides with this 
period of confessionalization. And during that period is the emphasis on Jesus's outreach to the Gentiles. That's interesting. So we, <laughs> we don't see this in the commentaries, but we do see it in Calvin's Institutes, mm. which is very much a document of confessionalization. Well, I guess if Ma Calvin is going to try to to work with Matthew's gospel and he's going to try to find Jesus reaching out to Gentiles, he's got limited places where he can go in Matthew's gospel because it's just not there much. Right. So why the shift in the emphasis? And I think it's because of the purpose of the institutes versus the commentaries. Um, the institutes belong to that second part mm. of the Reformation I just talked about. Um, and because of that, I think it's it's why he's he's marking and, and, and who it, what the church is. And the church is made up of Jews and Gentiles and all people called that is not limited. And I think that's why he puts it here. Well, it's um, a very practical theology, you know, and it's yes, it about yes. not only about Christian living, but also about how the church, how the church functions. And so that mm -hmm. makes sense that the institutes would address these more sort of functional mm -hmm. uh, issues about how the church lives out its calling as the right. church. Yeah, it's a shift to this ecclesial church, so it fits here. And what's really, really interesting um, is, you know, and I've mentioned this about the Institutes before, it's really that first big, broad, theological, uh, systematic theology. And so it's he has to put in the sense of Scripture, and this is how Scripture then mm -hmm. plays out in reality. Mm -hmm. So in the context, we find this as part of the calling of the Gentiles. Mm, interesting. Um, I, and, I would. I'm, I'm disappointed that Calvin goes there because, you know, as I mentioned, you know, in in Matthew's gospel, I mean, especially in this passage, it's hard to hard to bring out a mission to the Gentiles from this particular passage of oh, Matthew's and, gospel. And I want to point this out. The some defense of Calvin, he doesn't use this alone. He's using it with other passages okay, where yeah. you're talking about the Gentiles. It's not like he's sure, pulling this out and making sure. this huge argument off of this, yeah. but rather he's using it to support this broader yeah. this broader theme that he's seeing in other scriptures. So well, it's and not of quite course as it's bad there as elsewhere. maybe it sound out to be. <laughs> well, and of course it is there elsewhere, even in Matthew's gospel. Matthew has right. an undercurrent of, of the Gentile mission running all the way through. Right, right. He does, he does. Um, so... My final just comments is that I think it's interesting is that we see two different emphases on this passage, depending on the purpose of the writers. And I'm not surprised that Protestant reformers emphasize faith, but I was surprised that Calvin later used it in a different context in mm -hmm. his institutes. Mm -hmm. yeah. All right. Thanks, Christy. All right. Thanks. Hi, everybody. We're back. And I have been hinting at this uh, question for the entire podcast because a few years ago, I heard a sermon on this that has I've really walked with me for a long time. And I want Alan's response as a Bible scholar. Um, and maybe he even knows where this interpretation originated from. But um, so when I heard this, you know, modern people are really particularly impacted by Jesus' negativity. They, yep. they don't feel that it's in line with who Jesus is. And how do you explain Jesus being so horribly mean to somebody? And so her interpretation of this, this particular pastor was that um, 
Jesus changed Jesus's mind that this was early enough in his um, early enough in his ministry that he really did believe that she wasn't worthy and then through the process of this changed his mind and I wasn't sure what I thought about and in a way I guess I liked that there was the sense of Jesus's humanity and that Jesus could could evolve but in another way i felt that it was disingenuous to who jesus was so i'm going to put that out to alan and see how he responds well i would respond basically by saying that that is a sort of a common place among modern feminist biblical scholarship that this this is it's a story of a courageous woman who changes who who confronts jesus sexism and racism and, um, you know, through that, you know, he's able to become freed from his, um, preju- his own prejudices. And, ah. and I agree. I think it, it's reading, reading a totally foreign ideological agenda into this passage. I don't see, I, I mean, one of the reasons why this passage is so hard for us is because the only other time we see Jesus acting in such a harsh way is when he's cleansing the temple. And there mm-hmm. he's reacting to the corruption and the greed of the Jewish religious leaders, which, you know, it, we totally understand, right? He says, mm-hmm. my house should be a pr- house of prayer for all the nations, and you've turned it into a den of thieves. Well, he was, they basically turned the court of the Gentiles, which is the only place that God-fearing Gentiles had to come and worship the one true and living God into a bazaar, you know, and, and, um, you know, he, he was angered by that and, and mm-hmm. it makes sense, but the only, that's the only other time that Jesus, you know, speaks so harshly. And what is this, what does this Gentile woman do to, to, to deserve such, such harsh treatment? Right. Well, right. you know, so yeah, it's, it's a problem passage for us, but I, yeah, I, I just, and I'm familiar with that interpretation, mm-hmm. but I, I think it I reads. I never heard it before that. And so, as I said, it's it's like lived in my, I guess the good news is it's lived on my mind for all these years. Um, and and I thought, what a perfect opportunity to address it, because I'm sure other folks have heard that as well. I mean, I think it would fit fine for the disciples. You know, I think the disciples definitely had this problem they as i mentioned they they were beset by prejudices and biases mm-hmm, um mm-hmm. and and that that kind of view i, I mean i think that's what the whole po- i think that's what's going on in this passage is the disciples are being confronted uh about their prejudices right. against this woman well i think that's why i thought this was so brilliant because you point out in here well jesus is the one putting up the objections, which we do not see. Mm-hmm. So, and, and he's responding to these disciples of, hey, just leave her alone. We don't, we don't want to mess with her. And so I, I really love how nuanced it is. And I think we miss that nuance in there. And then we, we want to, but we want to explain away Jesus's behavior. But I think this, this makes sense within the context of A, knowing who Jesus is and seeing how seeing these, uh, the, how the language works. I mean, I think it's brilliant. I, I really do. Well, and I th- so there are a couple of things we need to be aware of here. First of all, um, again, um, the harshness of this passage is really only found in Matthew's gospel. And this whole thing what? about only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel is only found in Matthew's gospel. So, right. for example, Ulrich Lutz and his commentary on Matthew 
says, basically, if it troubles you, don't worry, because most modern scholars don't think it's original Jesus anyway, that Matthew's added it. Wow. <laughs> there you go. I, I'm not willing, I'm not ready to go to that extent, that extreme. Um, you know, um, I, I'd like to take Matthew's depiction of the story seriously. Um, but I, I, again, I think it strains credulity to believe that Jesus would really be that cruel, that harsh, you know, as to group this woman who comes begging for mercy with dogs and not with the children. I just don't, I just don't see that in Jesus anywhere else. And so that is what leads me to almost an ironical interpretation of the passage that, you know, he is, he's really testing his disciples. He's giving voice to the prejudices that the disciples would have harbored mm-hmm. against this woman. And in Matthew's context, he's giving voice to the prejudices that the church right. would of have harbored right. against right. Well, someone like this. And I love at the end how then he compliments her on having such great faith. Mm-hmm. And yep. I, I, I think that's just, a rem- especially against the little faith of the disciples. Yeah. And uh, so that's... Well, and the other thing I have a problem with this with this this inversion that that somehow this woman was correcting Jesus' sexism and racism is her approach is not consistent with that at all, you know. And and so what basically what that stems out of is these sort of conflict dialogues that Jesus has with the religious leaders, where they raise objections to him, and he basically. Um, shows that what they're having to say has no merit whatsoever you know and 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 so he just kind of he he just kind of destroys their whole position by quoting scripture oftentimes you know um and that's not exactly what's going on here you know yeah jesus is the one voicing the objections but her response is not one of 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 counter argument but rather her her response is one of consistent faith you know right Right, Lord, please help me. Um, even the even the dogs eat the crumbs under the master's table, you know, and, and uh, worshiping Jesus, you know, right. and so it's a very different, you know, putting this in a situation of a conflict dialogue. So form criticism is one where it tries to identify, you know, how did the gospel stories get shaped in the oral tradition and puts, puts passages like this into certain categories like a miracle mm-hmm. story or parable right. or, or um, a pronouncement story where Jesus makes a, makes a dramatic pronouncement at the end or this is, this is a conflict dialogue. I, I don't think that serves this passage to try to pigeonhole it into that kind of a stereotype. This is not a conflict dialogue. This is a, a unique, <laughs> one-of-a-kind tradition in the whole gospel tradition. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, you know, uh, some people might say, I'm trying to have my cake and eat it too by, by taking this ironical interpretation that, that Jesus is testing the disciples. But again, I mean, it's either that or... Matthew just created this out of thin air and, and it doesn't reflect Jesus at all because right right uh, yeah that's kind of what I thought it's like does it belong here and yeah. what you did for me was say yes and this mm-hmm. is why mm-hmm. and I, I I now really love it I'm kind of excited to present it because it has 
so much depth um, that I didn't give it before. And I will say this, I expected more comments about women. I expected the misogyny to Mm find it in the reformers. It's not there. It's just not there, at least not from the ones I read. That's surprising. That is Pleasantly surprising. surprising, yeah. It really just emphasized her faith. And one of the things we forget in the Reformation is really, um, even though we often, it's a time of, of great um, inequality between men and women, they still understand that faith doesn't have gender. Yeah, that's good. So, yeah. And yeah. that's, that's, I'm, you know, and, and we, we should give them credit for that. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It is, it yeah. is. And of course, right. We've talked before and, and the terms of the emphasis on having women be able to read the Bible mm-hmm. um, so that their faith can, can grow and expand. And uh, that wasn't true before then. So mm-hmm. yeah, there's um there's some positives that come out in terms of women, but I expected different, I expected more, ugly language here. It's just sure. not there. It's just sure. Not there. Sure. Sure. Um, yeah. So, I mean, to me, to me, I think the, 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 the real takeaway from this is, you know, in Matthew's gospel, the only people that he commends for having great faith is, is a Roman centurion at Capernaum. Mm-hmm. And this Canaanite woman from the enemy territory of Tyre and Sidon. And we shouldn't miss that. Now, again, I think, you know, Matthew is trying to portray Jesus as the son of David and the Messiah who comes to Israel in fulfillment of God's promises so that God is faithful to his people. And I think that's something that's important for Matthew. In this dialogue that's going on, who knows how long that dialogue went on in in the church, but we, we see re- reference to the dialogue about Jewish and Gentile believers interacting together in in the Christian church, mm-hmm. um, and and some people will say that the apostolic decree um, that um, Gentiles avoid blood and strangled f- foods and um, um, foods offered meat offered to idols and um, basically incestuous marital relationships. Um, um, some people will say this as a, as a, as a terrible compromise that inflicted, you know, um, burdens on, on Gentile believers. Well, the, if you go back to the Holiness Code in Leviticus, those were the four points that were, that were um, stressed for a foreigner mm-hmm. who was going to attach himself or herself to Israel, even back in ancient times. So, um, right, right. you know, even in ancient times, there was, a, there was a recognition that, you know, okay, you don't have to go the whole way and be a proselyte uh, and, and, and adopt circumcision and the whole nine yards right, in order right. to, to be sort of at least an affiliate member of the uh, people of Israel, so to speak, at least to attach yourself to the people of Israel and to worship the one true God. You just, these were the four basic uh, um, sort of um, non-negotiables that that were part of um, the Jewish practice. Um, Now, you know, again, we might ask, 
well, what was the what was the purpose of all of that? You know, I mean, the incestuous relationships that makes sense, but the rest mm-hmm. of it, you know, uh, Paul even deals with food offered to idols, and he doesn't really stick with that part of the apostolic decree. He says, right. you know, um, if you if you eat with thanks, and uh, then then eat whatever set before you, basically, right. Right, right. And and so, but but um, nevertheless, that was a there was a long long established precedent in the Jewish world that these were four items upon which you know that that, that were reasonable right. to ask of Gentiles who were going to associate with Jews uh, mm-hmm. in a community, and and so it's not surprising then that the when the early church dealt with this problem of how are Jewish and Gentile believers going to relate to one another in community. Right. This, this, these were the four points that they, that they, exactly. that they yeah. um, wound up with. Um, and, and as I mentioned, I mean, in some context, you know, someone like Paul didn't really even strictly enforce all of exactly. that. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Because it would have been, you know, and living in, living in a Greek city like Corinth, the only way one could be could could know for sure that one wasn't eating meat offered to idols was to become a vegetarian. The, I mean, yeah, because because exactly. because the well, meat was sold in an open meat market, and yeah, and and yeah, exactly. You, there's no there's there was no like label on it that this was offered to Dionysius <laughs> this morning. You know, it, there was no right. label on it like that. You know, right. it was just all in the market, and so exactly. you couldn't know. Yeah, well, this is so, I mean, it's so fascinating. And I think it's, I'm just really loving the kind of historical look at Matthew and thinking about how this then evolved up through, you know, his time and how Mm -hmm. he's dressing it. And it is, I love how we are at least making that effort to understand. Obviously, we aren't those people living at that time, but Mm -hmm. we do get this, we do get this wonderful lens into this particular time period and these particular issues, which we won't have exactly the same ones today, but I do think we can apply some of this to our contemporary world um, as we're looking at folks different than us that are Christian and that practice differently. So. Well, and as you know, I taught biblical interpretation when I was a seminary professor. And uh, since those days in the 90s, I have stressed that it's, it's looking into the historical context of the passage, whether it's a particular passage or whether it's a book or whether right. it's a particular community, you know, that's what gives you some just really fertile uh, opportunities for uh, finding points of application, points of connection with the with our, our contemporary setting. That's 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 where you yeah. find it is is by looking into the into the original setting. And you exactly. find those points of contact uh, with the with the contemporary world there. There, and that's yeah. I mean, exactly. that's my bread and butter when it comes to writing a sermon. <laughs> absolutely, Abs- well, absolutely, and it should be. And uh, I guess uh, that, and that's what we talk about in this podcast. And what's so important about this is that so many people don't, mm-hmm. and that we need to be aware of who we are and and how we're called to to uh, to relate this within that broad historical context that, and of course, this is why I talk about the Reformation, that, that impacts us today. And the sure. problem, you know, without going too far, the problem with the, some of the interpretation today is they're missing this whole process in between. Mm-hmm. And so 
um, they're missing, if you will, the meat of the entire passage. Yeah. So yeah. I think this was brilliant today. Thank you, Alan. Thank you, Christy. That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word. word.